Welcome to Vaginas, Vulvas, and Vibrators with Jordan Donnell. This is a safe place to learn about women's health and sexual wellness. I'm your host, Jordan Donnell, physician assistant, women's sexual health educator, and intimacy coach. On today's episode, we are talking all about pelvic pain. What is it? How common is it? And everything that you should know about it. This is a very informative episode and highly recommend. If you are listening real time, I want to share with you about the Get the Sex You Desire holiday special. This program has been so helpful for so many of the women in my community that I want to make sure that more of you can access it. So this holiday season, it is 50% off for everyone. Get the Sex You Desire helps you have better sex more often. Joining me today is Leilani. She is sharing about her experience with pelvic pain to help others better understand their own potential pelvic pain, when to see a doctor, and so much more. I'm super excited to chat with you today about pelvic pain. What exactly is pelvic pain? So according to the Mayo Clinic, chronic pelvic pain is any pain that can occur below your belly button or between your hips. And it's usually chronic when it lasts over three to six months or longer, depending on which diagnosis. And it's really important to look at things like pelvic pain because it can signal conditions like vulvodynia, vestibulodynia, vaginismus, pedendal neuralgia, endometriosis, pelvic floor dysfunction, prostitis, and more. So many different conditions can cause pelvic pain, and I'm excited to dive into more of those with you. Is it normal to have pelvic pain? So I think it's never normal to have pelvic pain, and please always see a doctor if you're experiencing any sort of pelvic pain, especially during sexual activity, during menstruation, or at honestly any point in time when you're just having some abnormal pelvic pain. It's also a great warning sign for some sexually transmitted infections, so it's very important to do regular STI screenings as well as pap tests. Yes, that's a really good point to bring up that sometimes a lot of STIs are asymptomatic, but they can present with abnormal pain, especially pain with intercourse. And so being aware and mindful of what's happening with your body, if something changes and doesn't feel right, always going to seek medical attention. How common is pelvic pain? So for, from the pelvic pain resource guide that my friend Michelle and I created, we actually had a statistic that said over 25 million women or vulva owners actually suffer from chronic pelvic pain worldwide. I know for endometriosis, that's one in 10 women or vulva owners actually have endometriosis. So I think it's much more common than people are aware of, unfortunately, due to lack of research and also just lack of people actually seeking medical attention, I don't think we'll ever truly know the number due to the stigma related to pelvic pain and sexually painful disorders like vulvodynia. But I know that it's a lot more common than we think. And I've even found in my own friend groups and even my own family members that came forward after me discussing my diagnosis that I would have had no idea also suffered from pelvic pain conditions. Yeah, I would love to dive into that a little bit more if you're open to sharing about your diagnosis and kind of what led you to helping other women with pelvic pain. 
For sure. So my journey, unfortunately, started four years ago. So I'm Leilani or Peaches. My pronouns are she and her. I'm from Vancouver, Canada. And I like to change my wording with how I discuss my own chronic pain. So I'm going to say that I'm currently healing from vestibulodynia, pelvic floor dysfunction, pedendal neuralgia, and I also suffer from Crohn's disease, and central sensitization. So when I dealt with this, I was not taken seriously by doctors. Unfortunately, I have, fortunately, I should say I have a research background. So when this happened to me, I created a list of potential issues I might have. And I did a lot of research into these issues. Every time I brought up these issues with doctors, I was dismissed. I was told to drink wine during sex. I've heard that a lot from other clients I've talked to when I was volunteering for the National Valvodynia Association. I was told that I was depressed or neurotic. I was told that I'm hyperfixating. I was a hypochondriac. So I got dismissed by so many doctors. So I started making a Word document with my own research. And I looked at every form of treatment, every potential condition it could be. And it actually turned into a huge 10-page Word document. I found Michelle on Instagram And when I found her on Instagram, I was just blown away by how many followers she had for such a niche area, which is obviously the niche area of pelvic pain. So I messaged her and I just basically said, hi, I'm Leilani. I saw your Instagram, The Happy Pelvis. And I just wanted to give you these resources if these things help other people. And she wouldn't let me just give it to her. She obviously wanted to co-collaborate with this. So she helped create graphics and we mixed together some of the work she already had done before into a pelvic pain resource guide. I love that. Tell me more about your pelvic pain resource guide and how do women get it and what is kind of the intention behind it and how do you use it? So you can get it on our websites. I'll drop those links at the end. You can also find it through our Instagrams. So basically we created it originally to A, obviously we want to have a career path in sexual wellness and pelvic pain, but it really was created to help people not struggle because I thought I was the only person in the world that had this. I used to cry and cry and cry and I felt so alone. And when I realized there was other people out there I just wanted people to have these resources. So number one, it is available by donation. Part of the proceeds or profits go to companies or organizations like the National Vulvodynia Association is who I donated to last time. Michelle donated to an endometriosis foundation, but we switch it up and we donate to different organizations each volume we do. So we're on volume two now. It is obviously by donation slash for sale. However, if anyone cannot afford to donate or cannot donate at this time, as long as they send us an email, we are more than happy to send a free copy because that's what it's here for. It's not really to make profit. It's more to help people. And eventually we'd love to grow it into something bigger but we always want to have either a sliding scale or free resources for people who need them because I know how expensive it is to get help for these conditions. Right. And when you're seeing doctor after doctor and potentially copay after copay and not getting any answers, it gets expensive. And not only is it expensive, but that process can be very emotionally tolling as well. So I know you really focus on small fiber neuropathy and central sensitization. What exactly is that? (laughs) So a lot of people don't actually know about small fiber neuropathy or central sensitization. My understanding of central sensitization is anyone who has chronic pain 
it can develop into central sensitization. So I'll use my pelvic pain as an example. When I developed my vestibulodynia and pudendal neuralgia, I started developing something called allodynia, which is a hypersensitivity to touch, heat, coldness, or clothing. So I wasn't actually able to wear underwear comfortably for several years. And I can happily say I can do that now. And I found brands that helped. But central sensitization is basically when you have chronic pain, my understanding is that it compounds on top of each other and it can create this hypersensitivity is my basic understanding of it. But it's really interesting because I watched a YouTube video that was just released a few years ago called Small Fiber Polyneuropathy and Central Sensitization. How do these concepts apply to UCPP? So Dr. N, Dr. Argoff, a professor of neurology from Albany Medical College, explained that roughly 50% of patients with fibromyalgia also demonstrated consistency with small fiber polyneuropathy when they did these biopsies. This is very important because this kind of links into central sensitization disorders or syndromes, which can be TMJ, pelvic floor dysfunction, migraine headaches, the list goes on and on. But in his retrospective study, which was which had the objective to demonstrate the prevalence of small fiber neuropathy in patients with chronic pelvic pain, 64% of them actually also had small fiber neuropathy in their biopsies. This is huge and important because this can show how different conditions over time, we might find better treatments. Because if all these people are having fibromyalgia, central sensitization, pelvic floor dysfunction, and it's related to small fiber neuropathy, maybe we can find better treatments. Some other examples are migraine headache, IBS, endometriosis, interstitialitis, vulvodynia, and other chronic pain syndromes. So it's, it's an interesting avenue to look at, although there's limited research at this point. There's very, very limited research on a lot of things when it comes to women's health, which I talk about a lot on the podcast that there's just not that much being done for these areas of women's health. And there's so many women who are suffering, who feel alone, who feel isolated because of their condition. And a lot of times aren't getting answers to help them get closer to having some type of relief or management. With central sensitization and small fiber neuropathy, what are some type of treatments used? Is that kind of treated similar to fibromyalgia and like using gabapentin or what what type of treatments typically? Yeah, so it's interesting. So I found that pretty much all the conditions that I suffer from, so I also do have TMJ, I also do have chronic headaches. So the treatments that I used for my pedental neuralgia and vulvodynia or vestibulodynia were very similar. So for me, if I specifically discuss my pelvic pain, I did things such as pelvic floor physiotherapy, which I think is one of the best things anyone can do because your nervous system can learn how to downregulate and relax when you learn mindfulness and different physiotherapy movements. And again, if someone has talked to me and said, oh, well, I've tried physiotherapy, if it didn't work, I encourage them to find a physiotherapist that really understands them because I've tried several and then I found a great one that really, truly helped me. Botox injections, which can relax the muscle, trigger point injections, which can also relax the muscle. And over time, I heard that the breakdown of these kind of fascia and muscles can help release the tension. Specifically for pudendal neuralgia, I did CT guided nerve blocks, which essentially I couldn't feel my whole vagina for about 20 hours, roughly, which was a good thing and a bad thing because it also feels extremely weird. But over time, nerve blocks can calm the nervous system. 
gabapentin really, really helped me. Rectal diazepam really helped me. I do warn people and caution people though that that can be addictive. So it's very important to look into that. For central sensitization specifically, because that was your question, I tried a really weird treatment, which was ketamine infusions, which most people haven't had the opportunity to try. And I won't lie, there's a lot of side effects and it doesn't work for everybody, but it really, really helped me overall with a lot of my chronic pain. Ooh, I love that you brought that up. I don't know what the regulations are in Canada, but I know here in like the States, using ketamine now for severe depression is one of the ways that they are using it, but it's really not regularly used in medicine. Are they doing like clinical trials or how is that used over there? So I go to a pain clinic called Change Pain in Vancouver. Unfortunately, because it's so quote unquote new, although ketamine is not new, ketamine has been used for many, many years. It's also been used a lot in veterinarian work. And it has a lot of advantages because it actually essentially is disassociating you from your mind and your body. Some people don't react well to that. I listen to meditation tapes during my IV drip with ketamine. And I tried different dosages. I also have a prescription for the nasal spray, which I believe is what they use for people with depression. I never actually qualified for someone with depression. So antidepressants never worked on me, but ketamine really helped me. From my understanding, the interesting thing about ketamine is that it actually encourages the growth of little synapses in your brain. And then the glutamate helps strengthen that. So even in addiction, people are using ketamine or ketamine infusions to help people with addiction. So I find that really interesting because it basically is changing your circuits in your brain. The nurse at the clinic told me, he's like, do you remember the computers in the 90s where you'd smack them a few times and you'd turn them on and off? I was like, yeah, I remember that. And he's like, well, that's basically what we're doing to your brain. So for me, I had a really great success with that. I don't recommend it for everybody because obviously it is a drug. I think any drug can be addicting. I think any drug can be dangerous. But if you talk to a pain clinic, that would be your best bet to learn more about it. And I would try other things. That was a last resort for me. So I did that. I saved up money and it's very expensive in Canada. It was 2700 per infusion. The prescription itself is around $60 for just the nasal spray, which is not as strong. Wow, that's a lot for an infusion for medical care. And I mean, I know how all the insurances work so differently, but it's just another point of how our healthcare systems are not necessarily supporting people the best of their ability by creating this. If you don't have the means to afford that, you're going to end up having to potentially suffer and it creates that healthcare disparity. So interesting. I had a question for you about methylfolate. Have you ever heard of methylfolate? No, I actually haven't. Ooh, okay. So methylfolate is the active form of folic acid. And a lot of people are actually missing the enzyme that converts folic acid to methylfolate in the body. And we use that a lot in my fertility practice for women who have kind of chronic pain, chronic fatigue, chronic headaches, chronic, like just interstitial cystitis, endometriosis, a lot of that. And a lot of women have improvement with methylfolate which is very, very interesting, but we use that all the time. So I just thought I would ask if you were familiar with it. Would that be like a folic acid and B12 kind of injection? No. So folic acid is the inactive form, and then you have to have the MTHFR enzyme to convert that to methylfolate in the body. And if you don't have that enzyme that converts it 
equally or like normally, then you end up having a deficiency. And so this gives you the active form rather than the inactive form. Cool. So could someone do a blood test basically to assess if they needed that or were lacking that? They can. However, most people have the mutation and the genetic test is thousands of dollars. And so ultimately, yeah, right. So ultimately in our practice, what we do is just recommend it for everybody since most people actually have the deficiency. And is that just, just out of curiosity, is that something that people take for a long period of time or is it more for like a short period of time of healing? So it depends in the fertility world, primarily through pregnancy. But if it's somebody who has kind of the chronic pain syndrome, then they would continue it long-term if they had relief with it. Interesting. Great. That's good to know. I I haven't actually heard that. I love researching stuff. So that's probably going to be the next thing I'm researching. Yeah, definitely take a look at it. I know we start our patients off at five milligrams, but we'll go up to 15 milligrams for somebody who is having improvement with the supplement and can tolerate it. Amazing. Thank you for letting me know that. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting fact. I've always wanted to talk about that on the podcast because it's one of those things that most people don't know. And in medicine, a lot of people don't know about the MTHFR mutation, but is very valuable. So when it comes to other types of pelvic pain, can you kind of touch a little bit more on some of the other types of pelvic pain that you see women experience or maybe some of the most common ones? Yeah. So I guess the main one would be vulvodynia. I personally, just this is just my belief, I believe that vulvodynia is just kind of this like umbrella term. And then underneath the umbrella term of vulvodynia breaks down into vestibulodynia, which would be obviously more localized pain in the vestibule of the vulva, things like endometriosis, painful sex, IC, you know, where you have to go to the bathroom all the time, lichen cirrhosis, which can cause patchy white skin on the vulva area and can be extremely painful. Vaginismus, for example, where, you know, people have major difficulty with any form of digital or penetration. I noticed when I volunteered at the National Vulvodynia Association, a lot of women and vulva owners and even penis owners, because I talked to all sorts of people, they often had one or two or maybe even three of these conditions. So I saw a lot of people with endometriosis who would also have pudendal neuralgia. Or I saw a lot of people with vulvodynia who would also have pudendal neuralgia. So I do feel like they're all very, very related, more related than we think. I really like to spread awareness about pudendal neuralgia because that's one of my main issues. It's way less talked about. It can happen in males or females, penis owners or vulva owners. It was originally called cyclist syndrome because a lot of people who developed it got it from riding bicycles or sitting long term. Ironically, when I was doing my master's, I was sitting a lot and I was going through a lot of high stress and to be honest, some personal PTSD and sexual trauma, and then it developed and no one knew what it was. So the pudendal nerve, for those who don't know, is a nerve that actually runs through your lower buttocks, in between your buttocks and your genitalia. And like I said, it can affect vulva owners and penis owners. It can be everything from itching, rawness, issues sitting down bladder and bowel irritation, the pain for myself that when I was about to give up and I thought that I actually was almost imagining this because no doctors would help me and I was extremely suicidal, I was very thankful because I was sitting down and I had an electric feeling go down my leg all the way to my toes and I jumped up and screamed. 
So that to me kind of cemented that this was real and this was happening. So I kept getting, I kept seeking care and I didn't give up. So people don't realize that that's actually also a symptom of pedendal neuralgia. It can be happened from many things, cycling, physical trauma, posture issues, stress, childbirth, so many things. Even some people I've heard, unfortunately, bad pap tests, people using the speculum and they clench their muscles. I don't know what caused mine and I never will know. So I've given up on trying to find that and focus more on healing because I spent so much energy on the negative aspects. So now I've switched it to the positive, which is, okay, I had this condition, I'm healing. What can I do to focus on? And for anyone who has pedental neuralgia out there, it does get better and it can get better. I think a lot of people lose hope and it is nicknamed like trigeminal neuralgia, the suicide disease because so many people have lost their lives to this horrible condition, but there is ways to get help. So please don't give up. If anyone with pedalin neuralgia is listening, it does get better. What do you recommend if there is somebody listening to this podcast who has pelvic pain, or maybe they know somebody who has pelvic pain? Is there anything that you recommend they do? I think one great resource that I'll highly recommend because I did volunteer for them is the National Volvodini Association. So they have a list of support providers, as well as a list of doctors around the world who might be able to assist with specialized pelvic pain like vulvodynia. I always recommend starting with your family doctor to get a referral to a gynecologist or pelvic floor physiotherapist. However, if they're not helping, please change family doctors. Please don't settle for bad healthcare and continue fighting for yourself. In the most important thing, I think, is that people have to do a pelvic floor examination blood tests to ensure there's no STIs, a urine sample as well to rule out UTIs. A good practitioner will do the following. They will do a visual inspection of your skin, potential Q-tip examination for hypersensitivity or allodynia of the vulva or penis, an internal pelvic examination to assess the level of tension, and also a speculum examination. And a quick reminder, you can always ask for a smaller speculum. Don't feel like you have to go for the big speculum. You can ask for a smaller one to make the examination more comfortable. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad that you brought that up. Something else on that note that as a provider, I'd love to also add that if you don't tolerate pap smears and they are very anxiety inducing and very uncomfortable and very painful for you, you can ask your provider to potentially give you some anti-anxiety medications. I know in my office for women who have extreme pelvic pain with speculum exams, we do offer Xanax to help reduce that and make it more comfortable for them. So that's something else as well that you can ask for what you need. If it, if it is traumatic for you, ask for the smaller speculum, ask for something to help reduce your anxiety. I talked about this on a podcast that's coming up too, but if your provider doesn't know how bad it is, even if you're telling them this is really uncomfortable, they may not understand or think about how a exam could be very uncomfortable. And asking for what you need is so important. That's amazing. That's such a great point because so many people, you know, even with me, if I'm being honest, I've had pelvic floor Botox. I've done a lot of work where I've learned how to breathe. And I actually had a doctor recently have a like a doctor who was learning more about vulvodynia watch me get the botox injections inside my vagina and she asked me like how i didn't flinch and i laughed i was like well i've practiced mindfulness and i know how to breathe now but i didn't know that i could actually have that option 
of having a medication given to me or, you know, some people actually want a twilight medication to kind of relax them because it can be very traumatic. And I like to think I'm all tough and I'm like, oh, look at me, like to my partner. I'm like, I did it without, you know, without any medication. But, you know, I actually got traumatized the other day when another doctor came to watch, I clenched more. So it it actually made it worse for me. So hundred percent, that's a great point. And people should be aware that, you know, maybe not long-term use of Xanax, but for these moments, hundred percent of believe that that's something that people should act for. Just on a side note of what you asked me before, I think the biopsychosocial approach to pelvic pain is huge. Like I touched on mindfulness and learning how to breathe into your pelvic floor and learning about the pain stress cycle. I think a lot of people, someone told me, one of the doctors told me, you know, it was a psychosomatic illness that I was experiencing. And I pushed that away and I really rejected that. And I felt like they were calling me, you know, severely mentally ill. But now that I understand how pain and stress react in my body from being sexually assaulted, from having trauma from all these doctors, it is so linked and, you know, it's nothing to be ashamed of. So for me, I've really started journaling every night and it's, I know the journaling thing, everyone's like, oh God, you're journaling. Yes, I journal, (laughs) but it really helps. Or even talking about it, you know, we don't talk about this enough and I'm, this is hilarious. I'm the vagina girl. I don't care. I talk about it all the time and everyone I meet literally has a story about their girlfriend or their boyfriend or their partner or someone who's experienced it. So, you know, I was in the waiting room the other day and and I was kind of bugging this lady in front of me. I'm like, Oh, what are you, what are you here for? And she's like, Oh, Volvodinia. I'm like, Oh my God, me too. Like we have to have these conversations. And again, obviously do what you're comfortable with, but I'm so happy that I talk about it because I was able to help a family member that was so shy and didn't want to tell anyone. And I was like, here's my pelvic pain guide. And then she told me in privacy that she actually suffers from pelvic pain too. So my own family member had it and I didn't even know. And I wish I knew sooner because I could have helped. Yeah, yeah. That's the one thing that I've learned with this podcast is that we don't talk about things that are happening with our bodies enough. And we create this environment where we're just not able to learn what's happening or like what's normal. We don't know what's normal. We assume that what we're experiencing is how it should be because we're not talking about it to learn what other people's experiences are like and that they're not having that or that they are and this is what they did. But I have learned so much from doing this podcast about different treatment options that are available, you know, pelvic floor, physical therapy, all of that, that I had no clue were available to offer my patients. And having these conversations is just so important with the people around us. I did have another question for you. As far as breathing tips and meditation tips, do you have anything that you would recommend doing to help reduce your vaginal tension? I've seen this a lot on social media lately. A girlfriend of mine, you know, she's doing these breathing exercises to reduce her pelvic floor tension. Is there any that come to mind for you? Yeah. So my favorite one, which works really great because it's summertime. So I had a really big mind-body disconnect. I think that might have been from my own sexual trauma. I have anxiety. So a lot of the times I also have, I'm neurodivergent. So sometimes I didn't really understand what my body was doing or why I felt that way. So it was very hard for me to literally understand my vagina. And I had a great pelvic floor physiotherapist who put a mirror in front of my vulva and helped me to look at it. And she'd show me when I was clenching or not clenching. And that 
is kind of what started me learning how to breathe and connect with my body, just like even looking at it or seeing where it is. And so once I saw it, I was like, okay, so I use colors. So I like to, you know, pick whatever color. My favorite color is clearly peach because my whole Instagram is peach is the pelvic health guru. So I imagine like a beautiful orange peachy color coming in through my nose and going down to my pelvis. And because it's summer, I literally tell my pelvic floor, you're melting like ice cream. You're just melting like ice cream or whatever. Some people like clay imagery. I use the ice cream one. I think it's funny and it's kind of cute. But I also, when I'm in examinations, etc. I look at the ceiling, obviously, because I'm usually in a pap test type situation with my legs open. And I literally focus on one spot on the ceiling, even if there's nothing on the ceiling to focus on. And I imagine like a dot or a point or a flower or a butterfly. And I focus my attention on that. And that's how I distract my brain. And we are very powerful. We can distract our brain. Another quick tip. Have you heard of, I think it's called EFT tapping. So I do that on my collarbones or even the top of my head. And that works great for me. So I don't know if you know more about that, but I've done some of those techniques to help myself calm down. Oh, that's so good. I am actually being trained in EFT. I'm becoming EFT certified and I'm excited to utilize that in my practice as well and personally too. So glad you brought that up. I did have something that I'm curious if you've done any research on, sexual trauma and pelvic pain. How common is it for somebody who's had sexual trauma to experience pelvic pain? I don't know the actual statistics of it, but obviously I've talked to so many vulva owners and also penis owners. I obviously, I think that I talk to a lot more vulva owners, but I have talked to, you know, men and women and non-binary people about their issues and trauma. And I have noticed, I do, if I'm just going to make up a statistic, I want to say that at least half of the people I've talked to have either had sexual trauma or some kind of severe trauma in their life. I've been sexually assaulted so many times that I didn't realize until I got sober. I used alcohol a lot to numb my pain physically and mentally a lot. I've been sober now for almost three years. And when I realized talking to therapists that I was sexually assaulted, even if it was micro sexual assaults, or microaggressions, you know, someone grabbing my breasts or my butt and these like, quote unquote, what we consider maybe small things that are just, oh, brush them off. No, they add up and it, it added up for me. And I didn't, I hated to hear the word rape. I hated to hear the word sexual assault. And my understanding from my body and my pain is that I think when I was sexually assaulted all these years over different periods of time, my pelvic, my body just wanted to protect me. So my pelvic floor muscles got tense. And if you think of your body as someone just trying to protect you and love you, I kind of relax my pelvic floor muscles more because instead of being angry at them, like, why are you so tight? Why can't you relax? It's like, no, you were just trying to protect me. And like, I kind of have that take on it now. But I do think a lot of people, I don't think that's necessarily the cause, but I definitely think the muscle tension and the grabbing of the nerve can be from our whole nervous system because that regulates our whole body, right? Yeah, absolutely. I know there's studies that show endometriosis, like 75% of women who have endometriosis have also been sexually assaulted in their lifetime. But also the statistics are uh, one in three have been sexually assaulted. So it's, is, is, does the chicken come before the egg? It's hard to really say, but especially with like vaginismus, tightening specifically of the vaginal canal, 
a lot of times things like that can have some correlation to sexual trauma and have a significant impact. So I don't think that we are doing enough for victims of sexual assault to know that these things can happen and then getting the help if they are experiencing something medically as well. 100%. And I didn't actually, you know, I'm 31 years old. I didn't know how many times I was sexually assaulted until I talked to a counselor. I literally thought it was, you know, brush off things that were minor and they were like, no, you were sexually assaulted. And I didn't understand that it wasn't just like the scenes you see in movies that are horrible. There's so many different forms of sexual assault that really affect people and we don't talk about it. And even my mother's generation, you don't talk about it. So I started talking about it and I have no shame and I'm happy to share my story with people if it helps people because we're not alone. And I think, you know, a lot of people think men aren't sexually assaulted. Half of the people I've dated have been sexually assaulted, especially as children. And again, many of them don't talk about it. And same with the addiction, like me learning about sobriety and getting sober. So many of my friends in recovery, especially the males, drank or did drugs to cover up that sexual trauma that they experienced. And a lot of them actually did have pelvic floor dysfunction as well, which is quite, again, what's the connection? Mm, that's a interesting link there. Good. It's very, very good information. One of these days, I'm going to have to get you back on the podcast to talk more about that because I think that there are a lot of people who may have experienced something similar or also have not realized their sexual assaults that have happened to them in getting more information out there about what that looks like, I think would be really valuable. I would love to do that. Definitely. Because the more we know, the more we can help people, you know, like, for example, like I'll give one quick example. I didn't know what stealthing was. I never heard the term before. Have you heard the term? It's basically when a partner secretly or a, someone you're having sex with or intimate, intimate relationships with removes a condom during sex without the person's consent. So I had that happen to me when I was, I think, 21 years old. And I didn't know. And I didn't know that that was considered sexual assault. So I think we have to have these conversations. And I would love to have a whole conversation on that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I would. We definitely, we need to have that conversation. Stealthing actually happened to me, gosh, beginning of 2020. And I, I'm sure that it happened before that too. But I remember like I started seeing all these stealthing posts and I'm like, oh, shit wow, like you don't make that connection initially because we are kind of trained that sexual assault is this picked up and assaulted in the back of a car and left on the side of the road. And that's 90% of the times not actually the case. Yeah. And people don't realize that, don't get me wrong, there can definitely be strangers that I've been assaulted by strangers on the bus. I've been assaulted by strangers in the club, but most of my sexual assaults were from people I knew. So People don't talk about that. Even my father confided in me when I was a child that his cousin molested him. And it, it can be family members. It can be, it, it usually often is, from my experience, people that are closer, which is terrifying. And that's why we need to have these conversations and give children, teenagers, adults, everybody the tools to know how to combat that and get help for that. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. This has been an amazing conversation and so much good information to help others out there who are experiencing pelvic pain. If they take one thing away from today's conversation, what would you want it to be? 
I think just don't give up. I think a lot of people told me what I should feel and shouldn't feel. You know your body. Find people online like the Vulvodynia support group on Facebook or Tight Lip Podcast, which is another great community of people with pelvic pain to help you and support you. And it's so important to have someone to talk to, whether that's a therapist, a counselor, your family doctor, a best friend, someone who you feel really safe with. And I can say I'm forever grateful for everyone who's been there for me during these past four years. And the more we talk about it, the more we realize we're not alone. So don't be afraid to share that with someone, whether that's a medical professional or a friend, or even an online friend like my friend Michelle from The Happy Pelvis. We became best friends. And I always have her to text when I have pelvic pain, and I know that she understands. Yes, yes. Having that community to help support you is so important. Where can the listeners find you at? Um, so you can find me on Instagram or Facebook at Pelvic Health Guru or at www.pelvichealthguru.com. Michelle and I are releasing our second pelvic pain guide next month. So we hope that this newer guide can help people learn about their conditions, advocate for themselves, and find the support and treatment that they deserve. And again, if anyone cannot afford to donate at this time, they can email me at pelvichealthguru at gmail.com to get a free copy. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Jordan. This podcast is sponsored by Intimacy Coaching by Jordan Donnell. Have you ever desired more from your sex life or feel like you're having good sex, but curious about how to make it even better? Are you desiring a deeper intimate connection with yourself? Or maybe you are dealing with desire and arousal concerns or struggling with communicating your desires with your partner. If you're hearing this and thinking, hmm, that might be me, and you're curious to learn a bit more, let's chat. I would love to talk with you more to see if working with me is a good fit for you. To learn more about intimacy coaching with Jordan Donnell, go to coaching.jordandonnell.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for joining today and continuing to bring awareness to women's health. If you love the show, please subscribe so you never miss another episode and leave a review for others to see. If you want to see me on the daily, you can check out my bio for links to all my pages. Be sure to share this episode with your girlfriends. Thanks again and see you next episode.